The future is going to be one of um, a fiscal restraint, and I think it will be global, and it will be out of necessity. Because coming out of this interest rate shock, you're seeing debt service costs rise inexorably. That cuts into program spending, and it's going to have brutal implications for fiscal finances in the future at a time when interest rates aren't so low anymore. Now, I think they'll come back down. But this has been a significant shock to the fiscal side at a time when you have more and more people dropping out of the labor market. These are high-income people. Uh, you're getting low-income people coming in, not low-income, but younger people. They're not paying as much taxes. So I think we're building up to something on the fiscal side that, uh, and this is one of the risks. One of the risks is that we're going to have a fiscal crisis. I know it's the boy who cried wolf, okay? But just remember this. In that story, the wolf shows up. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. Today, it's a great pleasure to be joined by David Rosenberg. David is founder and president of Rosenberg Research, an economic and financial market consulting firm he established in 2020. Prior to creating his own company, David was chief economist and strategist at Gluskin Chef and Associates. And prior to that, he spent many years at Merrill Lynch, where he was chief North American economist. David is a frequent contributor to uh, major financial newspapers and publications around the world and makes regular TV appearances. Dave, great to have you with us today. How is it all on your side? Everything is good here. Uh, I mean, doing better than the U.S. regional banks. So I'll set the bar, I'll set the bar low. Very good. Well, great to have you on. And as is always the case with uh, our guests on our podcast, we want to get a sense on their journey in the financial industry. Obviously, you've had an interesting journey from Wall Street to founding your own firm. Can you give us a, a sense of uh, how you ended up doing that and, and what's been your, your path through, through the financial markets? Well, it was a, uh, it was a dream of mine to uh, ultimately set up my own uh, research consulting company. And uh, when I came back uh, to Toronto from New York, when I left uh, Merrill Lynch, I had a lot of people coming up to me and saying, uh, you know, you should just hang up your own shingle and do your own thing because the sales force at Merrill had told me that um, uh, the research that I was pumping out and especially my daily was the most widely read piece of research coming out of the macro strategy team at Merrill at the time. This was back uh, in 2009. But, you know, although I was, um, you know, pushing... Uh, the ripe young age of 50 years old at the time, uh, I thought that you can still teach this old dog new tricks. And uh, when I had the opportunity to go to Gluskin Chef, which uh, was this uh, boutique uh, mutual fund uh, in Toronto, I thought that I wanted to round out uh, my career as an at-will employee on the buy side, because that's the one area that I hadn't been involved with. I was a advisor to the buy side all those years as a sell side economist, whether it was the Bank of Nova Scotia or the Bank of Montreal or, or Merrill Lynch. 
But the 12 years I had at Gluskin was, was invaluable because when you're there and you're sitting down next to portfolio managers and the CIO every single day, uh, you get a much keener sense than you do as a classic Wall Street economist or strategist. You get a real sense as to how the decisions uh, in terms of wealth management really takes place. Uh, I would never have known starting my business how to jump into the brain of a portfolio manager and understand what makes them think, uh, what it is that helps them make decisions. So I delayed uh, my eventual uh, startup of Rosenberg Research till early 2020. And such a point as I was comfortable in knowing how I can best help the investment community. Uh, those 12 years at Gluskin Chef, I've got to say, were more valuable than the previous, you know, 30 years I've had in this business combined. So, uh, you know, that explains that, you know, and in terms of just the financial markets, it's interesting because when I got hired at Merrill Lynch Canada uh, back in uh, late 1999, and I was picked off from the Bank of Montreal's economics department, where I was the number two to the economist back then, uh, uh, Sherry Cooper. Uh, and they wanted to put me on the institutional investor list, both for economics and strategy. And this is back in the beginning of 2020, when I really started uh, rolling my material out for Merrill Lynch Canada. This is two years before I went to uh, the U.S., and I told uh, my employers at Merrill Lynch Canada, I said, well, you know, I'm an economist, you know, so put me on the rankings for economics, not strategy. And they said to me, they said, we've, we've read your stuff for years. And although you're an economist, you talk like a strategist. And we noticed that every single time you write a piece on the economy, you never fail to attach a market call to it. So we're going to put you on both surveys. And for years, I got ranked on both surveys. So I think at a, at a young age, uh, I realized that if you're going to be a relevant economist on B Street or Wall Street or Boylston Street or Montgomery Street or any street, it's incumbent on the economist to take your analysis to a new level that's going to connect the dots from the macro to the markets and formulate as best you can a cogent and coherent and cohesive uh, investment strategy out of it. Uh, so that's why the financial markets as an economist has always been, uh, to me, you know, uh, intertwined so uh, so importantly. Very good. Um, obviously, you know, you're a macro analyst. There's a huge amount of information to, to shift into. So maybe before we get into kind of current views on, on the economy and, and where markets are heading, it'd be good to get a sense on your process, I guess, your research process, you know, how do you determine what to focus on? What's the most relevant? Um, do you have more of a, a US focus or, or is it global? And, you know, uh, what would you see as kind of the, your edge or where do you differentiate yourself in terms of your macro analysis? Right. Well, you know, being, being from Canada and Canada being a small open economy, uh, you could never call the Canadian economy uh, without having a strong sense of what's happening around the world. Uh, I guess I could say the same thing about, you know, an Australian economist. Uh, I tended to find historically, actually, and to this day, that the folks that call Canada uh, know the global economy and the U.S. economy, uh, as well as uh, Americans um, or, uh, or true global economists. So you have to have that world hat. You know, Rosenberg Research, you know, we have almost 3,000 clients across 40 countries and 70% uh, of them are in the States and the other 30% are dispersed between Canada, Europe, Asia, and some of Latin America. So, uh, we cover, uh, the entire world and we cover all the asset classes, uh, and, uh, all the economies and all the markets. So we're broadly based. I, I guess you could say that we probably, you know, given the composition of our clients, uh, have more of a U.S. focus than probably any other region, but uh, we cover everything. Uh, we have a monthly asset allocation model and investment strategy model uh, that we publish every month, and, and it covers all the asset classes across all the different countries around the world. So we, we, we are truly global. You know, what the thought process is, you know, look, we are, we are top down. So 
you know, it comes down to what are the things that influence interest rates? What are the things that influence valuations? Uh, what are the things uh, that influence where we are in the business cycle? And so we're very model driven, but I have to say I do have 40 years of experience. So there's a lot of intuition. And at my heart, uh, I have a strong knowledge of economic and financial history. Uh, the old Mark Twain uh, refrain about, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, patterns, uh, you know, they, uh, uh, you know, they, they might not repeat, but they certainly rhyme. If you don't have a sense of history, the chances that you will end up working at Rosenberg Research are very low because I want quant, but I want a knowledge of history. Uh, as uh, Warren Buffett famously said, uh, that the one thing that we learn from history is that people don't learn from history. So it's always important to know in that perspective, um, you know, what's similar uh, and what's different. Uh, so the bottom line is um, I put a historical perspective on our quantity of analysis and I'm able to isolate, you know, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. But we're very much a, a top-down macro shop that attaches our macro views to where we think the markets are going. And quite more often than not, if you get the call right on inflation and you get the call right on interest rates uh, and you get the call right on growth, well, then, as they say, Bob's your uncle, then you solve a lot of other questions for your client base, no matter what asset class they're managing. Fair enough. Um you mentioned kind of having that perspective on history as being important. And I guess you always get, you know, maybe in the media or elsewhere, people drawing parallels, you know, after the pandemic, everybody said it was like, maybe we're going into the roaring 20s. You know, obviously, we've had a lot of parallels with the 70s and then parallels between, you know, Jay Powell and uh, and Volcker. You know, you could draw parallels between now and, and 2000, but, you know, at, at, at the end of a, of a kind of a tech boom and, and possible bust. Um, and I think I heard you speaking somewhere else where maybe the parallel at the moment is with now and uh, the savings and loans uh, challenge in, in, in the late 80s, early 90s. So how do you go through that process of kind of not, not so much fitting the current economy, but trying to say, well, this is most like, or, or these parallels are relevant, but that that's not, that's a bit superficial. Is it just experience or um, how, how do you think about that? And maybe, yeah, where do you see the parallels now with, with, with history? Well, you know, I, I said that this was uh, eerily similar to the late 1980s because of the uh, leveraged boom we had in commercial real estate and how that uh, infected the savings and loan industry, which went through several years of rampant consolidation. We had a credit crunch. We had a three-quarter recession. Uh, the Fed took the funds rate from nine and seven-eighths down to three. And uh, even after the recession, we had two to three years of a very subdued disinflationary recovery on our hands. So in the context of commercial real estate, once again, being the problem child, that's not about uh, residential mortgages this time around, that was the last war, and that we are seeing uh, the problems where most of the CRE is situated is on the regional banks, uh, and we're finding out these small banks aren't so small anymore. So it had that sort of a flavor, uh, because the one thing that you always know is whether or not we have a recession or not, uh, Fed tightening cycles always end in tears. Uh, whether we have a recession or not, uh, it usually pops whatever bubble or whatever excesses there were from the previous period of excessive accommodation. And so it bears a lot of resemblance to the late 1980s in that regard. You know, you mentioned before about... Uh, the roaring 1920s. Uh, that was, of course, a whole theme from Ed Yardeni, who I actually debated yesterday at the John Malden event, and he's moved from uh, the roaring 20s to uh, rolling recessions, to which I say, I, I like rolling rock because at least you can drink that. And, uh, you know, the 19, the roaring 20s, you know, I thought, well, you can draw that comparison because, of course, we had a uh, a war shock uh, in World War One, and we had uh, a health shock. Uh, we had the Spanish flu, so now we have the war in Ukraine. We had the COVID, so then we came out of that. The night, but the 1920s 
was a radically different time period, uh, much younger population, much more vibrant population than we have today. When you look at the median age of the population and the dependency ratio, it's, it's vastly different. And we came out of that period, came into, um, the 1920s with very low levels of public and private debts, believe it or not, even after fighting the war and look at how strained the balance sheets are right now, uh, especially in the public sector, uh, but also in other parts of the, uh, of the private economy. So we had a different quality of the balance sheet and we had a, um, a, a different demographic tax rates through the 1920s because of the better fiscal position, tax rates were coming down. Does anybody believe that tax rates are going to be coming down? Uh, the one thing we know is that the levels of debts are unsustainable and um, fiscal restraint is going to be the order of the day going forward. That wasn't the case because the government balance sheet was in such better shape back then. There's just too many, um, too many differences uh, to draw this comparison. And uh, the two most important is the state of fiscal policy. And of course, um, you know, the fact that we had a much more vibrant, youthful demographic base back in the 1920s. So I sort of dismissed that uh, out of hand. The 1970s, uh, people talk about the 1970s, you know, and of course that's been reinforced by the fact that Jay Powell at every opportunity has compared himself to uh, Paul Volcker. But Volcker inherited a 12-year institutionalized uh, inflationary situation. Uh, the economy was much more sclerotic, much more regulated. Technology back then was not AI. It was a transistor radio. I mean, Microsoft didn't go public until 1986. So to talk about, you know, stagflation, inflation, look, we know where this inflation came from. Uh, it came from the pandemic. It came from the policy response to the pandemic. Um, I, I guess I would be willing as an economic historian to say that uh, inflation was transitory. It lasted 18 months. I don't think anybody predicted, including me, it was going to go to 9% last June, but we've almost cut that in half right now and we're making progress. And, you know, inflation is this exciting race for an economist between uh, watching paint dry and grass grow. Uh, it's a process. Inflation, you know, everybody says it's not falling fast enough. But, you know, inflation is falling just as fast uh, in the past nine months as it did in the comparable period in the early 1980s under Paul Volcker. And so I would say that uh, the makeup of the economy, and this comes down to what, what's the same and what's different. The 1970s, again, had a much different demographic backdrop. I mean, the first of the boomers were in their 20s. You know, they weren't heading into their 70s. Um, so we had a much different um, savings and spending dynamic. Uh, the spending dynamic with the household formation, which was going nuts in the 1970s, that was demand inflation. And then you had, uh, you know, uh, OPEC raised oil prices uh, seven of those 10 years in the 1970s. So look, you take the oil price up tenfold, you know, from $3.50 at the time of the embargo in 73, and then you go to $39 in 1979, uh, yeah, you're going to get uh, a massive inflation bulge, no matter what. But I mean, is, is oil going up tenfold? Uh, like, is, is oil going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, $800 a barrel? Uh, is, that, is that what people think it's going to go to? Um, so... We had an inflation shock. Uh, we had uh, supply constraints, you know, and, and they were coming from all circles. Uh, China shutting down port cities of over tw 20 million people because of a handful of COVID cases, but that's over now. Uh, the war in the Ukraine, you know, that's ongoing, but the effects on the commodity markets have leveled off. And um, the era of all the monetary fiscal stimulus is in the rearview mirror. And, and that was your inflationary episode. You have contraction of the money supply right now. The, the Fed uh, did not contract the money supply in the 1970s. Uh, this Fed, this J. Powell Fed, uh, the new Paul Volcker Fed, uh, modern day, is contracting the money supply. And that's very important because what it means is that any inflation you have right now is going to be a relative price game. Company X might raise its prices, but company Y will be forced to cut their prices. I think people will be surprised in the next year how quickly inflation comes down. Of course, it's a, a funny thing talking about the CPI 
you know, when 30% of the index is impu- is rents or imputed rents and, and, and they're inherently lagging in both directions. One of the reasons why it took inflation so long to go up, everybody was saying, but prices going up is because of the lagged impact of the of the low, low rents we had. And then all of a sudden rents go skyrocketing with a lag. Uh, it has an outsized influence on CPI inflation. So this is all to say that um, it's not the 1970s, it's not the 1920s. I think at the margin, you could argue that, uh, you know, COVID, you know, had an impact on lifestyles, maybe produced more of a narcissistic, you know, I'm going to get my bucket list. But, you know, at some point you do have to get back to work. Uh, And maybe this had more of a reinforcing trend on work from home. And work from home, you could say, well, that leads to lower productivity, which you could say is inflationary. At the same time, it's led to uh, commercial real estate vacancies being way higher than they otherwise would be. So that's created a deflationary development in uh, the office. You could say in the retail space uh, in commercial real estate. So they're more or less offsetting. So there have been changes coming out of COVID, but you know, it wasn't like a, a five-year war. Uh, it wasn't like um, the repeated OPEC shocks we had in the 1970s. OPEC was raised prices almost every year. So I think that, you know, every cycle we come out of with some changes, we came out of the dot-com bust with some changes, came out of the a whole new financial nomenclature. Uh, you know, everybody said, well, things will never be the same after the uh, great financial crisis. And now people are saying it's not going to be the same, but I think that, uh, look, the way, the way I see it, the overall factors that, uh, determine the economy, uh, which is policy and demographics, interest rates, how is that going to change? That, that hasn't changed. And I think a lot of the distortions outside of, you know, work from home, a lot of the distortions from the COVID uh, are behind us. I mean, what's what's most striking to me that tells me that we've actually normalized to a large extent is if you're taking a look at most global supply chain measures, um, the bottlenecks globally today are actually lower than they were pre-COVID. Uh, you look at the Baltic Dry Index. Uh, I mean, it's 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 collapsed seventy percent. It's it's back to where it was two decades ago. So uh, a lot of things have normalized. You're seeing, I think that the last thing that I'm looking at is the participation rate for, and this is in the U.S., participation rate for 25 to 54 year olds, the prime working age participation rate has gone up to its highest level in 15 years. Uh, and I think that's a very important result. It does mean that women, for example, uh, who are finding it frustrating in terms of childcare costs, or were fearful to come back into their work setting because of contracting COVID, that's over. And uh, for males, this great retirement theme, you see, that was one of the things people talked about, that there was some something new happening, that people over the age of 50 or even 40 can just sit there and, you know, uh, trade GameStop and buy Bitcoin and uh, play the S&P 500 and all the growth stocks and all the meme stocks, and they don't have to go back to work. And of course, for a while, they didn't have to go go back to work because the government was paying them so much money and you had an unemployment insurance situation, maybe out of guilt by our policymakers where people were getting paid more not to work than they were in the previous job, which is absolutely crazy. And so in the rearview mirror, uh, you know, nobody talks about the great resignation theme anymore. The great, the great retirement theme has been retired. So I think that, uh, you know, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, here you had, um, World War One was called the Great War. Uh, I'm not so sure we're calling the Ukraine War a Great War. That was a Great War. A- and then we had the Spanish Flu, uh, which was devastating. Uh, and for, for young males, uh, it was a devastating global blow to the world population uh, on a much grander scale. And you're talking about, you know, the two events coincided, but you're talking about five or six years. You know, by 1925... F. Scott Fitzgerald is writing The Great Gatsby. And who would have guessed that there's not one word about the Spanish flu or the great inflation. Inflation from 1915 to 1920 averaged 15% per year. And I would say the big danger would have been to extrapolate that into the future. And of course, the one thing about the Roaring Twenties was that we had 10 years of either disinflation or deflation. And I actually think we're going back into that period. If there was one thing I could agree with on the Roaring Twenties, it's that we're going to revert. We're going to revert. There is uh, 
There is no new era here of higher inflation, and the Fed is looking after that. I mean, obviously, the the, the market narrative has shifted, well, to, a, I guess, a more mixed views. But if you went back to maybe Jackson Hole last year um, and listened to some of the speakers at that, um, I remember the guy from the BIS or even Isabel Schnabel, you know, it was all about the challenges on the supply side of the economy. Were they wrong, do you think? Do you think that's all normalized? Um, you know, and, and then I guess the view might be going forward, you've got a huge transition of the economy coming in terms of the greening of the global economy going to require much higher levels of investment demand. Will that not push up overall growth and be a challenge in terms of being a more of an inflationary force? You know, that, that's typically highlighted as, as one of the, the factors that, that could be kind of associated with, with higher real rates and higher inflation over time. Um, would you agree with that or, or not? Well, I think that uh, you hear that a lot, that the greening of the world is going to be somehow inflationary. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see how that's going to be the case if the central banks are going to be keeping the rate of growth of uh, money supply below the rate of growth of nominal GDP growth. It's, it's a very myopic view to come out and say, there's thousands of, thousands of variables that are going to predicting inflation to there then say, oh, oh, well, deglobalization, that's going to be inflationary. But it's, it's ridiculous at, at the margin. It, it could be very modest effect. There's other things happening at the same time. Oh, the greening of the world. Yeah. So maybe, okay. So maybe the prices of copper and cobalt will be higher than, and lithium will be higher than the otherwise would be. But how does that weigh against one of the most powerful disinflationary forces in the world, which is uh, declining populations in critical parts of the world, like China and like Japan. You're taking a look, for example, in Canada, the only way Canada's population is not declining when you look at the fertility and birth rates is because of the aggress aggressive immigration policy, but Im immigra immigration is just stealing people away from another country. Look at where uh, U.S. labor force growth. Look, here's the reality is that, you know, people were saying this for years. It's nothing new. The greening of the world uh, was, was starting to happen anyways. Did, did we just discover Elon Musk during COVID? I don't think so. The aging of the population, people say, oh, this is going to be tremendously inflationary because of what it means for the labor force and, and uh, shortages of labor. Ridiculous, because you can't forecast inflation with just a supply curve. What you tend to find is that when people break the age of 50 and 55, uh, their spending on cyclical goods and services goes down significantly because their incomes go down. The, actually, the demand shock, the demand shock from an aging population, much greater than the supply impact on the labor side. And this is what the inflationistas don't tell you, because if demographics were inflationary, if aging populations were inflationary, then why is it that the two countries with the most aged and aging populations, China and Japan, also have the lowest inflation rates? The first of the retiring boom didn't start with COVID. It actually started over 20 years ago when the first boomers started to retire. And that is actually when the participation rate peaked. So even look at the participation rate peaking in uh, two th the year 2000, 2002, we'd be saying, oh, we got to be going through an inflationary future because of participation rate. Bad call. So there's so many things that go into it. Um, productivity, obviously monetary and fiscal policy, where the most important thing, and this is what, you know, you asked me at the beginning, where is it that we have our edge at Roosevelt Research is we are constantly drawing and redrawing what aggregate supply and aggregate demand curves are looking like, because those are the most powerful curves. We're trying to come up with a price and we try to come up with a price for everything. Now, when you're talking about inflation, you're talking about aggregate prices. Well, you have to have a framework where you have an understanding of what the shape of the aggregate supply curve and aggregate demand curve look like, and then how are they moving? And therefore, you can get to a bona fide uh, inflation forecast. And that's really when you think about inflation, drives interest rates. Interest rates drive the economy, inter interest rates without knowing, see, for investors, if you don't have a view on interest rates, 
How can you draw up a dividend discount model? How can you tell an investor, well, these are based on this interest rate that I think we're going into, this is actually the discounted um, present value of the future earnings stream. And you can therefore identify, are you overpaying or underpaying for this particular security or asset class? So is that why it's a very important call to make? But yeah, I would say that if you're, if that view is correct, uh, about the greening of the world, you know, we all know about it. Then, then why is, is virtually every commodity, every commodity is either in a correction or a bear market over the course of the past year, things have changed and what's changed is not the inelastic supply curve of these commodities. It's the demand side. It's the demand side. Interest rates are working their magic. It just takes a while. There's lags involved. That's what's happening. What has shifted more quickly? Because we are in a bear market in most commodities, by the way, including food. And that's because the demand curve is, is moving much quicker right now. This is the opposite of what happened 18 months ago when it was about the supply curve. And it was about the demand curve, but the demand curve now is shifting in the other direction. You touch on a good point. You know, obviously, as you say, Fed tightening always ends in tears. Uh, we've gone from zero to five percent, so you would expect there to be a reaction. What I mean, what, what do you use from a timing perspective to get a sense? And okay, it's starting to bite now. Obviously, if we went back a year, people might have thought. You know, if you if you go back to the start of the tightening cycle, people didn't think rates could go above two and a half percent without something breaking. Now we're up to five, and okay, we've had a wobble and the banking sector, but unemployment still at three and a half or three point four percent. What are the key indicators you watch to say, okay, now it's actually happening? Where, where policy is 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 starting to bite. You, you mentioned the money supply, so I guess that must be one key metric. What else are you, are you seeing at the moment that suggests, yes, it is uh, policy is is restrictive and and impacting um, the economy enough that we're heading towards a significant downturn. Yeah, look, it's it's always very difficult to time. You know, uh, when um, when the Fed started tightening policy in March 2022, the title of my slideshow was um, "Soft Now, Hard Later." Now, I didn't I didn't have that because I'm the Pfizer analyst. I was talking about soft landings uh, and hard landings, but I was saying we were making the transition. We were making the transition from expansion to recession, and we know that the lags between Fed policy and the economy in both directions, those lags are long. Uh, I mean, they work in both directions. Take a look. Uh, the Fed started cutting interest rates in the summer of 2007, okay? Recession didn't end until June of 2009. And the bear market didn't end until March of 2009. Uh, so even then, it took a couple of years for the Fed's magic to work its way towards economic recovery. And of course, other things had to happen along the way, you know, like TARP, which was not insignificant. So, you know, it's interesting because I saw my friend, um, you know, Sarah Eisen on CNBC uh, this morning saying, you know, here the Fed's been tightening for a year and there's no recession as if it's some sort of miracle. But the Fed, the Fed doesn't start tightening in March and you get the recession in April. It's not like it starts tightening in March, you get the recession in May. If you look once again at the historical record, by the time the we get the recession after the first rate hike, it's 15 months, which sort of says that uh, by June, uh, this economy has got a bullseye on its forehead. So we have to understand that the nature of interest rates. Now, the, we've had 14... Fed rate hiking cycles since 1950. Not all of them land the economy in a recession. There were 11 recessions that, surprise, surprise, happened in the aftermath of a Fed tightening cycle. There were three soft landings when the economy cools off, cools off enough to cause inflation to go down and enough to cause the Fed to back off. So three soft landings, and there's a big difference for the markets between the soft landing and a recession. A recession is actually the country takes a pay cut. It's one thing to have your bonus cut, another thing to have your salary cut. And that's the difference between a soft landing and a recession. Recession, you're actually, you have a, wait, a national wage cut. It happened in the mid-60s, a soft landing, uh, the mid-80s, and the mid-90s. Uh, and each one had their own peculiarities, but you see the Fed did not 
tighten into an inverted yield curve. The Fed tightened this time into an inverted yield curve. The, when people say to me, if I was on a desert island and there's a lot of people that wish I was, and I had just one tool in my kit, it would be the yield curve. Uh, there, it's got a 100% track record when the Fed inverts it. There was one head fake when we rallied into an inversion, the bond market rallied into an inversion around long-term capital and the last leg of the Asian crisis in 1998. You see the history is coming out right now. You don't want to throw something out. And of course, it always gets dismissed. It's, it's funny to me that when the Fed's cutting rates and the yield curve moves to a positive slope, all the economists, strategists are all over the yield curve. But but when the Fed's tightening and inverts the yield curve, everybody dreams up ways to, uh, you know, to ignore it. Ignore it at your peril. It's got a perfect track record. So this time around, and this is why I thought last summer, uh, we're in trouble because the Fed continued to raise rates in their quest to kill inflation. And of course, around the same time, Powell is consistently comparing himself to Paul Volcker. So it's pretty consistent that uh, we had, you mentioned we've gone from zero to 5% on the funds rate. Last time the funds rate went up this much in such a short time period, this is a real big interest rate shock, was back in 1981. Sample size of one. Well, 1981 was followed by 1982, six quarter recession. And so the chances we get out of this sort of recession are so remote. So what do I look at? I look at uh, real M2. Real M2 growth uh, is a leading indicator. I look at the yield curve. It's a leading indicator. I look at a range of, um, of ratios. Look at copper to gold. I look at Dow transports to utilities. So I, I always take a look because the macro and the markets, they're joined at the hip. There's a symbiotic relationship. So I look towards the markets to give me the signal. And of course, all the yield curve is, is the yield curve is the rate, is another ratio, just ratio between long-term rates and short-term rates. But we have to understand when we get to a one or two standard deviation event, we're only in an inverted yield curve historically 15% of the time. Right. It doesn't make sense otherwise, the time value of money, right? Normally the yield curve is positive slope. It's the bond market signal to the Fed, uncle, you've gone too far. Now, the reason why um, you know, the Fed didn't have to go too far in the mid sixties, the mid eighties, or mid nineties is that inflation was not seen as a big problem. And this Fed, you know, and especially look, you gotta put yourself in in poor Jay Powell's shoes, when you start getting compared to Arthur Burns and you're in your second term, uh, you know, you're not going to let that happen. You want to be compared to Paul Volcker and Paul, we know, we know Paul Volcker created the conditions for demand destruction to kill inflation. And, uh, I think that we're on that road. I think that people that say, oh, well, unemployment is always at a low, uh, when you're making this transition from one cycle to the next, uh, that doesn't impress me. It's a lagging indicator. Employment is always at a peak. And in fact, it's not rare to have employment continue to go up into the early stages of recession. So I don't spend my time really looking at coincident or lagging indicators, although I think that the Fed's been doing that. I look at, I look at leading indicators. So real M2, the yield curve, I look at uh, various ratios in the commodity markets and in the stock market uh, for a sense as to what the markets are telling me. But I also look at the contours of the business cycle. One of my favorite indicators, by the way, that I've always used back to when I was a young pup uh, in the mid 80s, the Bank of Nova Scotia, is what's called the cyclical share of GDP. And it's a great confirmation. Uh, and that's basically uh, business spending on CapEx, it's commercial construction, it's housing, it's inventory investment, and it's consumer spending on durable goods and cyclical services. And that actually was fractionally negative in the first quarter. That was fractionally negative in the first quarter. And so that is a red flag for me. That's telling me that the recession is actually going to be starting imminently. Uh, which was it the consumer side or the business investment side that drove that? Well, actually, what's interesting is that non-res non construction, and this is where maybe you're getting some of the infrastructure, was actually positive. But uh, CapEx uh, was negative. Consumer spending uh, on the stuff I'm talking about, durables, and everybody talks about 3.7% consumer spending growth. Um, but on the cyclical stuff, it was actually not nearly as strong. And then, of course, inventory investment was negative, And it looks like it's going to be weak again in the second quarter, looking at the survey data. 
look, GDP is a slow-moving animal. So much of GDP is, you know, spending on education. You want to look at that to call a recession? I don't think so. So much of the spending in the GDP is on healthcare. Would, is that going to help you call a recession? No. There's so much spending on utilities and on rent, for example, and on shelter. So you want to look at the, at the more, I wouldn't say volatile, but the components of GDP that tend to have more amplitude that actually give you, you know, a signal. Uh, now look at some, sometimes, sometimes it could be a head fake. I'm not saying it can't, but everything, but all the stars are lining up right now. And like I say, you know, uh, have you heard anybody say don't fight the Fed in the past several months? You know, back, back when they were cutting rates in early 2020, don't fight the Fed. Sure, all of 2008 and 09, don't fight the Fed. Once again, you see, I've been in this business too long. And the bulls love to say, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed, when the Fed's cutting rates and breathing liquidity into the marketplace and steepening the yield curve. Oh, 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 the butt. When the Fed's raising rates. Look what's happened here. They've already raised rates twice into a banking crisis. We've, we've lost three banks and the last central banker, the last Fed official to raise rates into a bank failure was guess who? It was Paul Volcker in May of 1984 around Clendon, Illinois. They didn't really have a full understanding of it, but I got news for you. He, they raised rates, and then once they realized the extent, and believe, we didn't go back in recession, but Volcker cut rates 150 basis points pretty quickly once they recognized uh, the, uh, the significance uh, of the event. And here we have the Fed raising rates. Goes to show you how... Uh, freaked out they are over uh, over inflation. Uh, they're, they're buying into this view that it's not falling fast enough. It's such a slow-moving animal that they're not taking credit. I guess they're so embarrassed by having the inflation rate get to 9% under their watch. And now we're down to five. And uh, instead of taking credit that, uh, well, you know, we're making strides, no, 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 it's not enough. That's one of the big, see, these are the things you got to factor in. Uh, are they going to wait? Are they really going to wait? Are they going to wait for inflation to get to 2% before they start cutting? Because that is uh, my definition of insanity. You know, it took a, yeah, Volcker, Volcker didn't get to 2% inflation until 1986. It took him seven years. It took, it took Greenspan 10 years to get to the 2% holy grail. And so under both those other gentlemen, interest rates, came down and rather significantly, people tend to forget that uh, the greatest inflation dragon slayer of all time, who Powell compares himself to, Paul Volcker, was also the biggest interest rate dragon slayer of all time. Now, Volcker cut rates 1,200 basis points. And guess what? Inflation didn't get to 2%. Of course, back then, they weren't talking about this being holy grail, which is, I think, ridiculous in its own right. Um, because theoretic, theoretically, it should be zero. It should be a pure price stability, but it's such an impure. Forty percent of the CPI is imputed by the by the BLS. Forty percent is just pure guesswork on the services side. But what I'll tell you, what is not guesswork is what's happening on the commodity side. Okay, and you swung from commodity inflation to commodity deflation. Tell me, at one hundred twenty-four dollars a barrel on oil, we'll talk about inflation down towards uh, $70? I don't think so. And it's true across every single gamut. There's only three commodities that are still at or near their highs. I think it's uh, sugar, cocoa, and cattle, and that's it. So cattle, so I'll tell you what, so so move from the steak to the pork chop because uh, hogs hogs have been a free fall. Yeah. So, so um, obviously, it's a fairly compelling case you make, obviously, for, for, for a downturn um, and obviously signs as well, as you say, in terms of some of those cyclical indicators that, that maybe it's starting to play out now. And we touched on a, a little bit with the deglobalization and demographics debate and all of that. But I mean, you know, a lot of the analysis you read about from a macro perspective is what's going to happen over the next six months or so, or you know, are we going to have a reception or whatever. But from a lot of asset allocators' perspective, it's, you know, how's the world going to look like for the next three, five, ten years? It, you know, so if somebody was to say, will it, will the world be more like what we saw between 2010 and 2020 or more like what we saw in 2022? And and obviously, this is really important from a financial markets perspective. Uh, you know, negative correlation between bonds and equities for, for you know, historically. 
but last year we had this positive correlation a lot linked to, to inflation. Do you think we're going back to the previous world and, you know, it's back to the same strategies that worked in that period or looking ahead, what would you say to people from an asset allocation perspective, um, you know, in terms of what's the longer term trajectory for, for those key variables you're talking about, inflation, interest rates and growth? Well, you know, my answer will be different probably in a year from now when we get into the recession and we have much lower multiples and probably much lower bond yields. So when we move the equity risk premium on the S&P 500 from call it 200 basis points to over 400, which happens in recession, bear markets, uh, I'm going to tilt very heavily towards the stock market, but it's not my view right now. Uh, like your question, I, I, I tend to take things a year at a time. Uh, the further you go out, the fuzzier it becomes. Um, so I'd say that I never abandoned this, whatever the, whatever the classic 60, 40 is, uh, in fact, uh, you know, 60, 40 is just an accident of history. Uh, we actually found, uh, depending on the time frame you look at that 50, 50 perfect split between stocks and bonds actually delivered the most superior call it sharp ratio, risk adjusted returns on a, on a balanced fund. But everybody went towards 60, 40, cause I think everybody just finds uh, the stock market to be generally speaking more sexy than, than bonds. So just own more stocks and bonds, but you're right. Both bonds and stocks got slaughtered last year, but it was mostly because of the starting point. You had no yield protection in, in the treasury market. So it didn't take a much of a move up in yields to cause negative returns across the treasury curve. Uh, and then of course we started, uh, the year with the price earnings multiple in the S and P at something like 22 times. It was the second most expensive stock market at a peak on record only surpassed by uh, the dot coms in, uh, late 1999. So it was a bit of a funny year, uh, starting a calendar year with such, uh, an egregiously low coupon protection for bonds and such a high multiple for stocks. So there was a setup there for both asset classes to be correlated towards a, a negative return. I don't know why anybody would superimpose that, um, into the future. And so far this year, uh, look, I'm not impressed that much with the stock market. The, the breadth has not been that good. And, uh, it's really comes down to eight stocks in the S and P, uh, but so be it, uh, you know, those are eight great companies. Uh, the stocks are probably overdone. Apple just continues to uh, surprise everybody to the upside. But as Warren Buffett said, you know, you reach a situation where you'd rather own an iPhone than a car. Well, you know, good on it. Apple has moved from a cyclical consumer gadget company to something that's almost like a food product company. You just have to own it. It's a, it's a staple. A lot of these growth companies have become staples and they're mega caps, but the stock market's up this year. And uh, bond market returns are positive this year. So whatever, nobody talks about end of 60-40 anymore. That was last year's story because so far this year, it's working out okay. And um, I am a believer in diversification and not just in terms of stocks and bonds, but uh, across all asset classes. Uh, I still believe diversification uh, is important as a risk management tool. You know, you're asking me about, uh, going beyond the recession and, uh, what's going to happen in the near term. Yeah. You know, in the next three, five, 10 years, you know, you could see some tectonic shifts that are happening. It's becoming uh, geopolitically, uh, a much different world than we've had in the past. This is where you start to put your hat on that. No, th there's, there's things that are fundamentally changing China, uh, Russia, you know, you could argue Brazil, uh, I mean, I mean, you're seeing that this economic war between China and the U S is, is likely to intensify that we're going to have a world where Russia will be a pariah and outside the traditional global economic system for some time, but this forms other allegiances. Now you're seeing other allegiances between Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Russia, China. And, uh, what they're doing, of course, is now trading in Ramimbi. So you're going to continue to see the share of us dollar activity in world trade and in world reserves going down. Now the central banks, of course, are bolstering, uh, their gold reserves. So things are happening here that, um, 
I'm not going to say that the U.S. dollar is going to be threatened in our lifetime as the world's reserve currency, but its status is going to be undergo a, pr a profound change. Um, and this will have an impact on um, the cost of capital in the United States. It'll have an impact on uh, real interest rates. Could have an impact, uh, obviously, on the U.S. dollar. Uh, so I would say that it leaves me bullish on more bullish on gold uh, than it was before. Looking around the world, looking for visibility. You've got military budgets going up in previous pacifist countries like Japan or like Germany. Um, military budgets are going up everywhere, and that has visibility. And uh, really, the the best aerospace defense companies are in the United States. I would just buy that ETF. I think that that is one area that transcends the business cycle that has growth. You mentioned before, of course, the greening of the world. Uh, you know, so one of the things we did at Rosenberg Research is we created a you know a green commodity index, and so I think that's going to be ongoingly an area of focus. I think um, agriculture, farmland is going to be a theme because of coming out of the COVID, but it's been the case for some time. And of course, climate change is playing a role here as well, but security of supply when it comes to foodstuffs, including food technology. So those are the areas, uh, you know, cybersecurity, that's not going to go away. Uh, that is just going to intensify. Um, so there, there are things that you can invest around. Uh, I fully agree with you on the commodity side, uh, that, uh, especially on the metals and on fossil fuels, undercapitalized, underinvested, it'll take at least five years to bring any new mine up on board to uh, add to the supply. So once we get by, you know, I said before the commodity prices are going down, but only because of the demand pressures from the global rise in interest rates, we come out of this recession. I think that commodity prices will bottom at higher prices than they have in the past. And then we will be in a secular bull market once we get past the recession, which is a natural part of the uh, business cycle. We won't be talking about it uh, after 2024, even though I see it coming over the next three months. So if you have a, a five to 10 year view, um, you know, those are the areas I think that you can point to. I would say that regionally, you know, India has got to be India to me, India is uh, what China was 25 years ago. China 25 years ago had a very dynamic, youthful population. Uh, India's got amongst the best population profiles in the world. Uh, and Modi, notwithstanding how divisive he is on the political side, is making great strides on infrastructure, which is what uh, India's been lacking. An educated workforce, and it's a liquid investable market. Uh, so that's one area, if you're asking me the next five to 10 years, what market I'd be looking at to be adding to would be the Sensex. One other theme you hear when people think about the next number of years is, is you know, how will debt, high debt levels get resolved and get brought back into line. And, and from that perspective, you hear arguments around financial repression and then I guess linked to that, I mean, from the perspective of monetary policy over the next number of years, you mentioned, okay, rates, inflation may not come back down to 2%. So is that the scenario that you see, or, well, well sorry, it may not settle it. It sounds like the, we, we may see deflation in, in the short term, but do, do you think when when it does settles, will, will the longer term level of inflation be a bit higher? Periodically, you hear this debate that as you say, 2% was kind of plucked out of the air. Maybe it could be three. Do you think that's going to be a, a theme that we hear going forward as well? It could be. It, it's hard to say. You know, you, you really want to fade a, a lot of the uh, this rhetoric. You know, it was the same rhetoric that said uh, that the uh, wave of retirees, uh, you know, which isn't new. It started 20 years ago. It's ongoing, but we're going to get inflation out of aging demographics. We've done a ton of work on demographics and the coefficient on inflation, the aging demographies works in a disinflation manner. So that's going to be a weight on the inflation view. Debt is a pervasive constraint on aggregate demand. And so I think that the necessity, and look, maybe it comes out of the debt ceiling fiasco. We'll see what happens. But I think that it's a natural inclination to view fiscal policy in the future as being one of restraint, not stimulus. 
And I think we just, uh, unfortunately blew our wad. Uh, I mean, Trump unnecessarily provided a trillion dollar tax cut in 2018 at a time of full employment. How crazy is that? And then we have stimulus checks for all stimulus checks for all when we already re- reopened the economy. But I think, I think, I think that era of, uh, fiscal, um, recklessness is over. And I think we're going to go through a prolonged period, prolonged period where we're going to have fiscal austerity. Uh, that tells, that's going to be a weight, negative weight on aggregate demand growth relative to supply. So everything we're talking about, uh, dealing with the debt situation, well, how are we going to deal with it? You know, people always said to me for years and years and years, uh, we'll deal with the debt by reflating, inflating our way out of it. We'll inflate our way out of it. How well did that work out? Did the Fed sit there and say in June of 2022, did Powell say, hey, we love 9% inflation. We're going to inflate away out of these debts. No, he went nuts raising rates because they don't want the inflation because they view the inflation rightly as a tax. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a social disease. Uh, it's a tax on the poor and it's a tax on the elderly. So no, we, we're not going to inflate away out of the debts. Well, what else are you going to do? Default? Really? We're going to default on the debt. Oh, really? Uh, most of the pension funds... Okay, that pay the retirees. They own these treasuries. You're going to default on them, sure. And then you get this craziness about debt monetization uh, or MMT. Those days have passed. I think it's going to be old-fashioned. And here's where you want to be a historian: is look up other countries have done it. New Zealand, Australia, Canada was the poster child uh, for fiscal austerity back in the 1990s, and put Canada on a much more stable fiscal footing. I would say Canada actually at the federal level is on a much more stable fiscal footing than the United States is principally because of the changes that were made. One of them, by the way, God forbid, God forbid we should ever do this in the United States, but means testing for entitlements. What do you know? In quasi-socialist Canada, entitlements are means tested. Oh, no, 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 but not in the capitalist United States. You see, a lot of things are going to be changing that can be changed at the margin to get the U.S. fiscal footing but it's going to come at the expense of aggregate demand. That's why all the stuff we're talking about winds up more like disinflation than inflation. But I guess I, I suppose a lot of people in the kind of camp of the inflationary side or financial repression, et cetera, would be of the view that because of the political landscape at the moment and, the, um, you know, if you if, even in Europe here, you know, you've had higher rates from the ECB, but a lot of countries have brought in measures to soften the blow, basically subsidies for, for uh, energy costs, etc. Obviously, you've had the the, the the checks during COVID in the US and high levels of government spending. So around the world, the bias has been for more active rather than less active fiscal policy, whereas back 10 years ago, austerity was in vogue. So what, what do you think? prompts the political landscape to shift? Is it just the economic reality kicks in and it's a necessity? Or do you see the pendulum shifting back towards uh, a more of an acceptance of austerity? Well, you know, it's when you start reaching a situation uh, like you have in um, like you have in the United States right now. And maybe Europe hasn't got there where your fiscal finances get engulfed by uh, debt service costs. Uh, and now you're seeing um, debt service. So, so you reach a situation where, you know, if debt service charges start to rival or exceed program spending, you got a big problem. When you get your interest payments so high that you're running these deficits, principally because of higher interest costs on the outstanding debt, at some point, and this is uh, this is where the inflection point may be, is is when you get a failed auction. Could that ever happen in the United States where you get a failed auction where all, all the bids aren't filled? Uh, it's hard to think that that could happen, but you know what? That's your inflection point for a crisis. Guess what? Guess what? Exactly what happened in Canada in 1995. Canada had almost had a failed auction. The Canadian dollar plummeted. Interest rates backed up. We had an exogenous shock. And the left-leaning liberal government under Jean Cratchit and Paul Martin did an about-face that was for the history books. Most people don't know about that. It's worth studying. So I guess we'll have to wait. It's like, you know, you, sometimes you have to wait for the crisis to happen. The crisis in this sense would be, what if you had a failed auction or a massive tailed auction in uh, one of these treasury auctions? They'd say, then you'd start having people talk about the U.S. losing its reserve currency status. Well, that would be a, a splash of freezing cold water. So 
Uh, I'm not going to say it's going to happen, but you know, it's, uh, it's amazing, you know, <laughs> why waste a good crisis? No, I, I think the future, the future is going to be one of, um, a fiscal restraint. And, and I think it will be global and it will be out of necessity because coming out of this interest rate shock, you're seeing debt service costs rise inexorably. And, uh, what does that do? That cuts into program spending. And then whether you're talking about Europe, old Europe, or I can say old United States, United States does not have the immigrants coming in like they do in Canada. You're talking about a, a dependency ratio that's going to have brutal implications for fiscal finances in the future at a time when interest rates aren't so low anymore. Now, I think they'll come back down, but, um, this has been a significant shock to the fiscal side at a time when you have more and more people dropping out of the labor market. These are high income people. Uh, you're getting low-income people coming in, not low-income, but younger people. They're not paying as much taxes. So I think we're building up to something on the fiscal side that, uh, and this is one of the risks. One of the risks is that we're going to have a fiscal crisis. I know it's the boy who cried wolf, okay? But just remember this. In that story, the wolf shows up. Very good. Um, well, we've been chatting now for, for, for just over an hour. And one thing we do like to ask people before we wrap up is, is, is advice and uh, suggestions. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was you referenced uh, some of your former colleagues at Merrill Lynch uh, and their wisdom a lot in your writing, uh, particularly Bob Farrell. Um, so why was Bob Farrell such an influence on you any, and, and any other influences? And, and what advice would you have for people who want to learn more about global macro and financial market analysis? Right. Well, look, because Bob, Bob Farrell, there was just so much depth, so much knowledge and, uh, so much experience. And that's the one thing you can replace in this, uh, industry that we're in, uh, is experience, but he, uh, had just a very unique lens, uh, on the markets and, um, could distill a lot of information into a market call. And he was very disciplined and, uh, very impartial. He just basically let the charts and let the, uh, numbers do their thing. And he'd be able to, just like a museum curator could look at a, a picture at the, uh, museum of modern art and tell you what's there that you can't see. If I told you how many times I would sit down with Bob and he'd be able to look at a picture of a chart of anything and be able to tell you things that you actually couldn't see, not, not evident to the naked eye. He just had that, that look, he. He was just in a, in a class by himself. Uh, and a lot of the people that worked for him actually went on to have stellar careers, uh, as well. Uh, you know, uh, Walter Murphy, Dick McCabe. Um, so that's the one thing, you know, uh, is when someone's disciples go on to have stellar careers of their own, uh, you know, that, uh, the leader was doing something right. And so in terms of, um, you know, I would just say in terms of the last two questions. So, you know, my market call is basically, uh, you know, my personal portfolio, I'm, I'm under 20% in the equity market right now. So I'm not zero. I don't believe in zero or hundred. It's always shades of gray. Uh, but those shades can often, they change color too, but I'm in my lowest equity weightings personally since 2007. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I think rates are going to come down. I think inflation is going to come down. So I like long bonds. I also like gold. Uh, so one of our themes has been the bond bullion barbell, which has worked out very well. And uh, a lot of the other themes that we've been talking about, uh, I have a lot, uh, most, of, most of my money is in actually alternatives. When I say alternatives, I mean, uh, you know, uh, neutral, uh, market neutral, long, short strategies, things that are, I'm more right now and I have a lot of cash. So right now it's about being in capital preservation mode. Okay. That's the time of the cycle to be focused on capital preservation. Uh, we'll move to greed and cyclicality, uh, you know, when we're three quarters of the way through the recession, it's only about to start. And in terms of, um, you know, how people can find, uh, Rosenberg research, you can either just Google Rosenberg research or, uh, go to information at rosenbergresearch.com. Uh, we have 12 different products. Uh, we have a webcast series. Uh, you have the ability to contact me. We have an information box where you can ask me questions. I spend a third of my day just answering questions to clients. Uh, but that's the, that's a very effective low cost way, uh, to, uh, to stay in touch with me. Uh, so, um, information at rosewellresearch.com and, uh, everybody who 
wants to, we uh, offer a, a one month uh, free trial. Uh, so you have the opportunity to, to kick our tires uh, before you uh, uh, commit yourself to uh, a one year subscription. Very proud of the fact that I started this business with 1,600 clients and roughed almost 3,000 in three years. So I figure through thick and thin, I must be doing something right. Great stuff. Well, David, thanks very much. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks very much for, for coming on today. So uh, make sure you follow David's work because as you can tell from today's conversation, we have a lot to think about from a global macro perspective and it's more important than ever to stay well informed. So from all of us here at Top Traders Unplugged, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back soon with some more exciting episodes. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.